a Podcast One production. G'day, I'm Chris Russell and welcome to Agriminders. This series focuses on the rebuilding of Australia after the ferocious 2020 bushfires. Fire has been part of the Australian landscape for well over 30,000 years and indeed a critical part of the food and fibre production cycle. Yet the ferocity and intensity and scale of our recent fires appear to have caught both the emergency services and regional populations by surprise, or has it? We've seen an almost perfect storm of weather and fuel events that has resulted in the 2020 fires being the most widespread and the hottest fires we've seen in Australia since Federation. The effect of these aggressive fires is yet to be fully seen, but the more we understand about how and why they occurred and the effects that they've had on our productive land, the better we'll be able to look towards future-proofing ourselves against these fires. So to help us in that journey, as always, I've invited a series of agriminders who are prominent and forward-thinking when it comes to the problem that affects our land and our animals. First up, I've invited one of Australia's most experienced fire experts. He's former Fire and Rescue Commissioner of New South Wales, Greg Mullins, and he's going to speak to me about his experience of the fires and also where he believes we can look to solutions for combating the frequency and the ferocity of these fires in the future. Welcome to Agriminders, Greg. Thanks, Chris. Greg, what made you get into firefighting in the first place? It's a tough gig to get into from what I hear. Why did you get inspired to do that? Look, I I grew up watching bushfires. So I lived in Terry Hills in the northern suburbs of Sydney, surrounded by National Park. Um, My father built our family home in the mid-1950s and as soon as he'd built a garage for us to live in while he was building the house, somebody came and knocked on the door and said, all right, here are your choices, the PNC, um, the bushfire brigade, or a couple of other things. And he, he was ex-military from World War II, and he said, oh, I've fought fires before, I'll join the bushfire brigade. So I used to watch Better Dad. Better than the PNC, I would have thought. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> but he got involved in that too. Mum and Dad were into everything, so very community-minded. And that's another thing, I suppose, I'm both public servants, so... I was always going to be a public servant, but um, I used to watch orange glows in the bush at night and wonder which one Dad was trying to put out. And I'd, the fire shed was over the road, so I'd watch the old um, ex-army blitz wagon heading off to fires with Dad at the wheel. So I was pretty well fascinated by fires as a kid. Uh, became a volunteer at about age 13 with Dad. And when I left school, did my high school certificate, I marched straight into town and applied to be a full-time firefighter. And um, it's gone full circle. I'm back as an RFS volunteer in the same brigade. So are you surprised by the fires that we've seen recently, the ferocity of them? The, you know, uh, uh, what, what about them has been different in your experience, which has been lifelong? Look, yes and no. So together with 22 other former fire and emergency chiefs, and you're aware I formed emergency leaders for climate action earlier in um, 2019, we saw this coming. It's part of a long-term trend, a drying trend, a heating trend. Um, The fires have become worse and worse. Fire seasons have become longer. Um, Major fire seasons are more frequent and we're getting more frequent days of very high fire danger and above. And that's part of the trend. But we had 1994, 
New South Wales, um, the late 90s, we had fires in New South Wales, Tasmania, Victoria. They were getting really intense. 0102 in New South Wales again, so only only six, seven years um, after the major fires in 94, which was unusual. Um, Tasmania was a real story. They, they used to get bad fire seasons about once every 30 years, but it's now down to about every five or six years. Wow. Um, the big fires, 2003 in Canberra, and we had 2009 in um, Black Saturday in Victoria. Now, those were outliers, um, but now we know that's part of a trend. 2013, that really capped it off. We had major fires and property losses in Tasmania and New South Wales, and there was no El Nino. Now, that's never happened before. All of the major property loss fires in the past were during an El Nino event. That wasn't. So we looked at that. 2018 was a catastrophic year, particularly in Queensland. Started off in August in New South Wales, um, but then we had rains, and then Victoria. But you were warning of this in April. Yeah. So this was, so the year before that, we'd had massive fires. We had fires in April in um, Holsworthy in Sydney. We had Tathra in late March, and that was unheard of. They, they were really odd fires, the time of year and the weather that we were we had, so we knew that we were heading for something really bad when the drought set in mm. because there were no indicators for this summer of monsoon and like there, there was a little bit in 2018. So we thought this is going to be a really bad one. We tried to warn the, warn the Prime Minister and the government and, of course, history knows what happens there. He wasn't interested. So why? Look, we've racked our brains on that and to me it's just got to be ideology. Um, it's obvious that leaders of um, coalition party, coalition governments have a great deal of difficulty getting across any sort of climate change agenda um, because there's varying views in the party, but it appears that the denialists hold sway. And so the internal politics, um, their economic rhetoric about um, creating jobs, letting businesses thrive, thrive, but particularly the mining industry, so the Minerals Council, etc have a big influence. And I was told by former public servants in Canberra, as soon as you put the two words climate change in your letter, you were discarded as an activist. So forget your expert knowledge and the thousand years of cumulative knowledge. Um, you were just, they were never going to meet with you, which is a real shame because there's practical measures that could have been taken way back then. Wouldn't have stopped these fires, but maybe could have reduced some of the property damage and um, certainly would have put us on a better footing ready for this incredible disaster. But, I mean, climate change and, and global warming didn't actually start these fires in the Fair Income Department. You know, they might be a, an underlying cause of the drought and so on and so forth and the conditions, but there's been a lot of finger-pointing about what actually caused these fires to be start and to be as ferocious as they are. What do you believe that is? So, so, look, that's interesting that you say that because that was some of the rhetoric from government ministers and the Prime Minister himself. It's obvious that climate change didn't start these fires. Well, nobody with half a brain ever said that. Um, they actually said climate change set the conditions for the fires that started by whatever means to become un in uncontrollable, totally uncontrollable. How did they do that? So now the drying. Now, if you look at southeast Australia, 15 to 20% reduction in winter rainfall. Now, what has that done? There's other reductions in rainfall different times a year, but what that would do 
is enable burning off. So farmers could burn Richmond Valley, Clarence Valley, and they knew the times. They had their books that their parents and grandparents had written in with weather observations. They knew when it was safe to burn, but a lot of those fires got away um, in August, July. You know, fires started up in those areas. I was up there fighting fires, Torrington Plateau, Tinga, February and March last year, um, massive fires. But And they were saying that, you know, it's just so dry. Places like Gyra ran out of drinking water. So this 20-year drying trend topped by a drought and the ex- and a, about a one-degree rise in temperature mean, meant that the extreme temperatures, as we've seen this year, we broke average temperature records three times for Australia in one week. We had 48.9 degrees at Penrith and broke all-time temperature records for Sydney um, just before Christmas. So... Um, Fire danger index, we broke records on the 6th of September. So the worst fire danger in recorded history in northern New South Wales for September on the 6th of September. We broke them again on the 8th of November, the 12th of November, um, New Year's Day, uh, New Year's Eve. The list goes on. So this has been a weather-driven event. Extreme weather has proven to be driven. It's proven to be driven by climate change. So there's actually, that's, the underpinning thing. Now, when you say climate change doesn't start fires, tell people in Tasmania that. Um, former Chief Fire Officer Mike Brown and, and John Gledhill before him both said Tony Blanks, um, Head of Forestry and National Parks Firefighting, their 40, 50 years of experience, they never saw fires started by lightning. Um, 2016, they had hundreds, literally hundreds of fires started by lightning in World Heritage areas again in 2008. So how does the lightning link to the climate change Dry issue? storms, different atmospheric stability. Um, so no precipitation whatsoever with these storms, and they've never seen that in Tasmania. So there's limited research in, in this, but the Bureau of Meteorology, a scientist called Andrew Dowdy, has done quite a bit on this and found that they, he can't tell whether there's more dry storms or whether it's the underlying dryness of the fuels that makes it more readily burn, but there's a definite increase in lightning-caused fires. So you could actually say there's a climate influence on ignitions. And most of these major fires we've had in New South Wales, as according to the RFS, were caused by lightning. So I, I talked to Philip Mulvey, who's a, a soil scientist, uh, and uh, you know, in an interview um, prior, uh, also, and he, he's saying that um, a lot of the country has become a thick woodland and which has now been locked up as National Park and then we've had this huge fuel build-up, which has been well talked about, you know, wasn't actually thick woodland in the time of the Aboriginals. It's only since it's been locked up in National Park and not burnt and not hazard-reduced that's been the case. So it, do you think that the management of our wildlife resources and our flora particularly has been a, a big contributor to this in conjunction with the dry conditions brought about by rising temperatures globally? Look, fuel, of course, is a key factor. But if you look at how much has been burnt, so I think we're up to nearly 6 million hectares in New South Wales. So you've had farmland, you've had freehold land, um, crown land, na- uh, forest, national park. So there's there's a whole range of tenures. And last figure I saw was about 46% was national park. And a lot of those fires started on private land and went into National Park. But um, a lot of the parks have been hazard reduced. 
that so you, you've had fires go fast, go slow, um, but just massive on the days that they run, they become massive. You've had thousands of kilometres of fire edge. They just can't be can't be mocked. I think up the fire edge at one stage would have stretched from Auckland to Scotland. Eleven thousand kilometres was the last Amazing. I heard, and which is a lot of fire edge. So you haven't got that much haze in the world. So um, good luck unless if it doesn't rain. So. There's a lot of argument about this now. Nobody really knows whether it was thick woodland or not. And they do know that um, a lot of the farmland that's got no trees was was woodland, but it's not anymore. So we've changed. Europeans coming to Australia in 200 years, we have changed the mix, definitely. Um, would it have made a difference? So three things that really made an impression on me in the last couple of months. I was up um, near Rapville where a lot of homes were lost. Uh, we got called, it was about two weeks after the homes were lost. I was up there for a five-day deployment um, working out of Grafton. We got called to an area and the locals said, well, the fire's been through there. There can't be fire there because it burnt two weeks ago. So we started driving there with about five fire trucks, saw a plume of smoke and thought, what the hell? Um, drove into a fire trail. So the scorched leaves on the eucalypts, had come down with the high winds, so there was a carpet of leaves and it was burning again. A burning stump had set fire and we had about a hectare of light and we had one metre flames running through again, heading towards unburnt land. And a couple of times that fire was deemed under control, but high winds broke out again and this was the reason. So um, so that was really interesting. Last week I was up near Wombin Caves um, we were out on Oak Ridge Trail, I think it was, off Wombian Caves Road. Friday, it was extreme, oh, severe fire danger, pretty windy, about 39 degrees. Jumped the trail, and we had eight fire trucks trying to pull this fire, oh, about six spot fires up. It had been burnt a year before, hazard reduced. So it was just bracken fern and leaf litter. We could not pull it up um, because it was so dry. And the other thing, Bateman's Bay on News Day, I was there from about nine in the morning and saw stuff I've seen before, but not on that scale. Um, and it was pretty upsetting being there. But people's front lawns were burning with half to one metre flames. So the, this incredible dryness, it actually, under extreme conditions, and you've heard the fire commissioners from New South Wales, Queensland and Victoria say, this is a furphy. You know, everybody's got their story about heavy fuel loads and let's blame the parkies or the grannies. And look, I've seen heavy fuels before in pockets um, where I live on the northern beaches. I've gone to areas we burnt about 18 months ago. It'll burn again now because there's enough leaf litter on the ground. In extreme conditions, it will carry fire into the heavy fuel areas. So, Greg, one of the characteristics of these fires, as against a hazard reduction burn, for example, has been the extreme heat we've seen here. Um, and, and, you know, that's been completely different, as I understand, of these big canopy fires. What, is, what have you seen as the effect of that? And what do you think the long-term effects are going to be, particularly on agricultural land? Yeah, well, well, great question, Chris. There's, and there's two key factors here, so I'll make sure I don't forget them. So um, fires creating their own weather systems, so that's one. But the other thing is... Uh, available fuel. This is um, Greg Mullins, amateur scientist, saying this, and I don't know of any studies, but I've spoken to some forest scientists 
and they've nodded their heads. You have more more available fuel. So these fires are actually hotter because I've heard people say, some media people saying, how could fires be more intense? Fires are fires. Well, no, it's what you burn and what the heat output is. And there's actually more fuel burning immediately because it's so critically dry and because it's hotter, generally hotter and closer to its ignition temperature. So there's it's actually very simple physical science, that side. Now, the other thing with the fire intensities is um, my father talked about the 1939 fires, which he fought as a 15, 16-year-old, and he was out um, areas that are burning now, Ilford, um, out near Lithgow, and he said the sky was orange. It was like night during day, um, but he said there was lightning, um, the the smoke plumes became storms and there was lightning and the winds came from every direction. And what he was describing was pyroconvective activity. And it was a bit like the Yeti. It was a legend amongst firefighters. I know my cousin's mate's brother's mum saw one once, but I've never seen one. And it's a bit like that through my career, 48 years of fighting fires. But I did see one in 1975. And I've think See I've, one what? A, a, a fire create its own thunderstorm. Okay. And... This year, they're common. So what I've taken photos of Blackheath, um, Batemans Bay, fires that I've gone to and I've sent them into the RFS and alerts have come out. That's where you get, you know, the trees ripped out of the grounds, tornadoes ripping people's roofs off and then the houses burn down, trucks being lifted up, eight-ton truck fire trucks and killing firefighters. You get this extreme fire activity, activity because... It creates its own thunderstorm. It draws in winds from all sides, so you don't know what direction the wind's going to come from. You have violent downbursts, and then you have lightning starting fires up to 30 kilometres away, like the Sir Ivan fire in 2017. Um, So that's now common. And we had a day, November the 12th, and there's a measure of atmospheric stability, the C. Haynes Index, and the index that day, I remember looking at it, extreme fire dangers, but it was an index of five. and On a scale of what? Um, it can go up to about 14, you know, the, where, and that means it's a very unstable atmosphere, so mixing up and down. So storms can fall, easy for a storm to occur, but at five you'd say, no, there's a bit of an inversion and holding a lid on things. And the, the, pretty average. Yeah, so yeah. You're unlikely to be a storm, very, very unlikely, um, actually almost impossible, I'd, I'd say, I'd, and I'm not a meteorologist, but the meteorologists have told me that's really weird. On that day, there were multiple pyro, multiple pyroconvective events, many, many homes So lost. fire made lightning attacks, Multiple really. fires up on the north coast and northern tablelands created their own storms. Um, so the added winds, you had spotting 12 kilometres ahead of the fires instead of four or five. You had lightning strikes 20 and 30 kilometres ahead of the fires, creating new fires, and you had intense winds coming from all directions, spreading the fire in places firefighters wouldn't have expected. So extremely dangerous for firefighters and for homeowners, for people caught out in these fires, extremely dangerous. This is now commonplace. So, Greg, having seen that and having seen basically an an anormal event come out of nowhere... Um, how, what, how are we going to plan for handling that in the future? How, how are firefighters going to know when it's going to happen? How are they going to get predictive about it? And what are they going to do about it? So, Chris, I, this is what we were trying to see the Prime Minister about, to say we, we're dealing 
trying to deal with stuff that humans actually can't deal with. And I, I was in California in November on the Kincaid fire in Sonoma County and talking to ex-fire chief um, Ken Pimlot up there and we've corresponded over the years and have the same views about climate change and fires and they're losing 18,000 homes and 9,000 homes a season, not, you know, even more than us. So they're ahead of us on the curve. Um, what the conversation needs to be in the future is how does everything fit in? We've got to look at Indigenous cultural burning practices, whether they, you know, we assist that to come back in. Um, we've got to look at fuel management and a whole range of ways how we build homes so Australian Standard 3959, the radiation and ember attack rules, probably, well, they do, they need to be beefed up. Whether we do what Portugal did after they lost lives and many homes and build community refuges so that when the fires come through, they all shelter and they've got food, um, air filtration, water, and their fire truck even shelters inside with them. Um, there's How we use the military, what can the military do? Um, in support roles, and we've seen that now. And we tried to tell the Prime Minister it was really difficult and need to be thought through, but we were just fobbed off. And now he's saying, you know what, it was really difficult and needs to be needed to be thought through. Well, thank you, but a bit too late. Um, so there's so many sectors we need to look at. And, of course, in agriculture, you know, how we protect farms. Seeing farmers up around Tenterfield just being hit over and over and over again. And I remember putting in a backburn on a property and I had all the farmers there and I talked to them. This was back in um, February last year. And I said, look, that fire's coming over the hill. It's going to take everything. We've got to try and stop it getting over that road or it's going to be 50 k's before we pull it up. I've got to take this out. And I remember the shoulders slumping and I said, and they had farm workers and slip-on units and everything. And I said, is everything okay? They said, well, look, mate, you're looking at grass and fuel. I'm looking at the winter feed, and if we don't get any rain before May, it's going to be too cold to dry uh, to grow, and I'm stuffed. You know, this is three or four generations of my family. I've got to walk away because can't afford to hand feed. So these are the issues. Um, it's a it's a total rethink. Of that's a that's a very real call. That oh god, I I was devastated. You know, and, and what did I, you end up doing? Well, we had to burn it. And I, you know, you can say I'm getting quite emotional about it because I just remember this bloke and, you know, he'd been there all his life. He was born there. Um, his his kids were born there, um, his dad. And he basically said, I've got to walk away after this, but I get what you mean, mate. We've got to protect those other guys down the road, the other families. And so this will have to go. And uh, so what... We're trying to say, and it's now 31 former fire and emergency chiefs, they keep joining um, because we've all seen the same things. We've all seen it get worse. It is a trend. It's not one-off. They're not outliers statistically. It's just mm. getting worse. So um, how do we feed everyone if farmers have got to walk away? If it's too dry, there's no water and the fire keeps wiping them out. And I, when I was in California, I was saw a professor at Stanford University, Chris Field, I think his name was, and he said, Greg, what you've got to understand is that Mother Nature's changing things. I said, well, what do you mean? He said, well, it's warmer now. We've made it warmer. There's no question about that. So woodlands are becoming scrublands, and Mother Nature uses fire to do that. Scrublands are becoming grasslands, and Mother Nature uses fire to do that. Grasslands are becoming desert, and Mother Nature uses fire to do that. So you're going to see more fire and 
things are going to change. So I, I wonder what that does to our, to our farmers and the people who feed us. Well, I think that's a that's the big question. I guess what frustrates me is that we're putting huge resources into, you know, what's jousting at windmills. My question is, okay, I don't have any faith in the politicians getting this sorted at all. If that's if that's not going to happen, what is our plan B? You know, what are we saying to our future farmers? We're going to help you make sure that there is a food production that we need in the future. Yeah, and, and look, we're not growing enough food for future populations, you know, so, that, so it's got to We've got to work out how to do this. And I don't have the answers, but this was what we were saying to the Prime Minister. There's so many sectors that need work. We need to pull the best and the brightest together and say, what are we going to do in the future? I'm not a farmer. I wouldn't have a clue. You know, buy my broccoli at Woolies. So um, so you have to get people who know together, come up with different ideas. But the basic problem, this was a weather-driven event. It actually didn't matter about fuel. You know, I'm sorry to those who fervently believe this, but where the fires have gone and what they've done wouldn't have mattered what the fuel loads were. Um, just in some areas, it made it more intense over that 5 million hectares, 5 or 6 million hectares, much more intense. But um, it was intense everywhere. Extreme weather is driven by climate change. Climate change is driven by the burning of coal, oil and gas. We've got to wean ourselves off it somehow. And we have to start somewhere and not keep copping out, saying we're only a small emitter. Um, my dad enlisted in the Second World War. My granddad was shot in the face on the Western Front in World War One, fought in Gallipoli. And if I said to them, they'd gone now, but if I'd said to them, look, you know, Australia only contributed a tiny bit to the Second World War, so what you did was worthless, I know what they'd say to me. Mm. So where's our moral authority? And I do get passionate about this because I've got grandkids. Are you optimistic that we're going to get there? Oh, look, yeah, I have to be. Yeah, and yeah, and you have to be, Chris, because it's our planet and we've got to fix it. And I think I see a change in the discussion with the government and from the Prime Minister. And I, I do think I understand the difficulty he has in his party room, but I just hope the moderates and people who actually read the science rather than some right wing blogs um, start to put their hands up and say, we're not going to listen to some of those people anymore, we actually have to take action. We can't, they've all acknowledged, okay, climate change had a big effect on these fires and it did, didn't cause them, et cetera, et cetera, but it certainly set the scene. And I don't know if people realise the scale. So our worst previous fire season in New South Wales was 94, 206 homes lost, 800,000 hectares. So now we're talking 2,100 homes lost. And what is it? Six? Is it six million? I think it's million ten million Australia-wide, and yeah, six million in New South Wales. Six million. Yeah. So, look at this: the scale. Now, what I'm worried about, and my colleagues are worried about, is Tasmania, South Australia, Southwest Western Australia, um, Victoria. Their worst fire time is from first of February through to a couple of weeks into March. They haven't even hit their bad fire time yet, and look what's happening there already. So, if they don't get rains, um, and they're the states that lose lots of homes. So in 1967 in Hobart, 1,600 homes, uh, I think it was 67 killed. Uh, 2009 in Victoria, 2,029 homes, 173 killed. Ash Wednesday, uh, South Australia, Victoria, many, many killed, thousands of homes. So now New South Wales has joined the Thousands Club. What a rotten club to be a member of. And I'm... I'm actually really depressed about this and 
uh, the only way I sort of pull myself out of it is to go and jump on a fire truck and try and do something practical. But um, we we could see a lot more loss. Yeah, we're not out of it yet. And so maybe, you know, somebody said, is this our Port Arthur moment? Is this the Prime Minister's Port Arthur moment? And I hope some people in that side of politics start to push out the deniers, just start, say, hey, we've got to do the right thing by future generations. So we've got an area roughly the size of Ireland, you know, that has been burnt out so far. Um, what are the implications for that area in terms of future? Now all the fuel's gone, you know, the, you know, once they're all gone, I mean, it's almost sterile, some of that country. What about regrowth? What about future fires? What about moisture? What are the implications for us for that area, including a lot of agricultural land in the future? Yeah, well, great question. That That's going to be an emerging thing. And, and the wildlife, I saw something I never saw, I've never seen before in Batemans Bay, and look, this might be upsetting for some people listening, but very upsetting to me. Um, kangaroos usually get away from fires. They're very fast. You'll see mobs of them heading towards a river or whatever, and I've seen that a few times during these fires. I saw them running out of the bush onto the um, highway in Batemans Bay on fire and dying on the road. And what that was was area ignition, and so multiple embers coming down over multiple hectares and it all goes up at once like a bomb, and they've got nowhere to go. So they, they they literally can't escape, and once they get to a cleared area, they just collapse and die. But um, incredible losses of wildlife. Um, the heat of these fires can sterilise the soil, kills the microbiome. So we won't actually need to have the debate about hazard reduction for a long time because there's not a lot left to burn after this, apart from Sydney suburbs, which have been well hazard reduced, but a lot of them, but there's still a lot of danger out there. Um, there's so many implications into the future, but... Uh, what about regrowth? Wildlife, I mean, fires well, typically have been sought to be carbon neutral, for example, because the yeah. regrowth would largely soak up a lot of the carbon that was produced. I think we produced two-thirds of Australia's emissions already this year and what are we up to them you know january when we're recording this so yeah. you know so, what what about the whole implication for for that well scientists are saying decades to reabsorb just reabsorb that um and will it grow back now i talked about areas that have been hazard reduced we're getting places so fire regime regimes are changing so when i was a kid dad told me about the seven year cycle the 13 year cycle the 21 year cycle which give or take a few years I could see, you know, it was when you had major fires, not so major fires. Some years would be benign. Now it's the Blue Mountains, for example, um, burnt in 0102, um, 2000, was it six or seven? Um, there was a major fire in the Grace Valley, uh, 2013. Now we're burning again. So that's somewhere that it, it burnt in 1946, 57, 68, 77, 94. Um, so it's about... 11, 13 years. Now it's burning every five or six years. So that's changing the fire regime. And some species, mountain ash, when that burns, it won't come back. And you're talking about areas that have never burnt before, like World Heritage areas in Tasmania. Hewan pines, pencil pines are not adapted to fire. 3,000-year-old trees, dead, gone, um, might never come back because the way they reproduce, they can't come back. They've, they've been killed. Um you, the Highland Plateau near Dorigo, uh, rainforest, never had intense fire 
you know, looking at the carbon record on the trees and tree trunks. So it's in, burned intensely. So we don't know what will happen there. So given that's the case, what do we do though? Something's going to come back. I, I don't. We, I, we need to we need to manage yeah. that now. We need to move forward as a as a country, both from a food production point of view and an ecological point of view. What are you and suggesting a, we and do? And look, the big thing is bringing people together. I don't care who it is. I don't care what party people vote for, but we need to say to our politicians, we're not putting up with this anymore. You need to bring people together, um, take a bipartisan approach to matters of survival of the planet and our future generations. So we're, we're not putting up with you keeping on this banging the drum of they're not with us, it's the arsonists, it's the greenies. Who can we hate this week? Um, I'm, I'm really over that. So, Greg, these fires really in all aspects are unprecedented and we've got a limited resource base. How do we actually allocate those resources to best mitigate these fires in the future and the damage that's been done by them? Looking at that, uh, that question, going to California was really instructive. So California is firefighters heaven. If you want some heavy fixed wing air tankers, you just call them in and all you've got to give them is a number. I want 10, I want 20 um, helicopters. I want 500 fire engines. I want 10 hand tool crews, but they can't cope. So they're just saying, look, we have to harden our infrastructure. We have to build more resilient communities. And it's it's a whole rethink. Um, we've had programs in New South Wales like community fire units. It works in urban areas. It's not so good in rural areas. So the rural fire service is having a rethink how that might work. But equipping people to look after themselves and, you know, farmers do that very well. We saw them with their slip-on units, with their trailers and their utes and um, getting to know their fire problem. There's a really good um, program between Nature Conservation Council, farmers and rural fire service called Hotspots about how to burn safely. All of these things, cultural burning with Indigenous people, traditional owners. We need to put all of those in a great big pot, get all of the best and brightest together and say, we haven't got the resources of California. And even if we did, we wouldn't cope. What are we going to do in future? So um, lifelines, so water, sewerage, electricity, you know, being in Batemans Bay um, on New Year's Eve, the electricity was gone. There was there was running water, thankfully. But um, the day, for days they had no internet, so they couldn't get warnings. So, look, it's a, it's a whole rethink of how, how do we make more resilient communities? How do we equip communities to actually look after themselves because they're not going to have a fire engine in every driveway? Um but how do we prevent these things in the future? How, how do we s- reduce ignitions? If lightning's going to be a big factor, okay, we've got that. With the fuel management question, and one of the reasons the existing fire commissioners said, look, um, it's a bit of a fallacy. They had hectare targets after the Royal Commission in 2009 into the Victorian fires. If you burn burn 10,000 hectares in a remote area, that's probably not going to do as much for assets as 10 hectares around houses in a, in a suburb of Geelong. So, and they know that. So they're burning less area, but they're doing a lot more strategic hazard reduction. So in future, it might be fire breaks around communities. Um, so it's a total rethink. And the cost of adaptation is very, very high. And while we're doing all that ad- adaptation and the recovery, 
we must not take the pressure off the government to act on the basic problem, which is emissions and dooming future generations to even worse, because this is how it is from now on. What about firefighting resources themselves? You know, is aviation the key? Is it more people? Is it professional firefighters? What do we need to do in terms of responding to the fire when it happens? So, look, it really, and I, I haven't got the, I actually haven't got the answers, and I think this is where a dialogue's needed. But if you look at the demographic of volunteers, um, there's a reduction in the number of volunteers. They're getting older. Now, that's part, part of the problems of drought. So in rural areas, people are leaving small towns, going to big towns like Dubbo, Orange, um, or to Sydney to find work. So you've got less young people who can get on the fire trucks. So you've got a demographic problem, um, not seeming to attract as many volunteers as we used to. So there's a big issue there. Why not? We've got to understand um, current generations, what attracts them, how can we keep them? Um, urban fire services, of course, I was, uh, you know, fire and rescue commissioner in California. They bring on seasonal firefighters, paid firefighters. So, so in Sydney, Newcastle, Wollongong, for example, every fire station on the fringe would, they'd put a bushfire tanker there in summer and they'd have seasonal firefighters working from 10 in the morning till eight at night or whatever, and for longer if need be. And on a bad day, there'd be even more of them. So you've got a surge capacity. We, we might need to look at that. Um, aircraft are useful and there's different ways of using them tactically and strategically. So the big um, fixed wing bombers that drop retardant, that's a strate- strategic lines. They're not that good on a day when fires are spotting, um, but then you need the direct attack aircraft. We're missing, I believe we're missing the middle, which are medium-sized fixed-wing aircraft that can attack the flames directly and scoop water so they've got rapid turnaround or they short takeoff and landing where there's no water to scoop and they can be filled rapidly. But all they'll do is take the sting out of a fire when it approaches assets so that firefighters on the ground can get in and do their work. So aircraft don't put out fires. They just help the people on the ground. Um, yeah, that was a big issue because the government had abrogated its responsibility, the Canberra government, of a dollar-for-dollar arrangement entered into in 2003 and ignored the advice of the current fire chiefs to um, beef up what they were putting in by $11 million. They put the extra $11 million in in uh, late December and a lot of those aircraft still aren't here, so they weren't there when we really needed them, which is a shame. But we've got to rule a line under that and just say, okay, they get it now. Um, let's all get together and bring Australians together to fight this common foe, which is climate change. So just, um, I, I hear that, leaving that to one side, when you wrote to the Prime Minister in April and was hoping he would come and see you, what was the outcome, other than a, a long-term um, strategy on carbon, what was your outcome that you were really looking for him to do right at that point? Look, the main thing was aircraft. There was, there was funding for aircraft that the fire services were screaming out for, um, but they were being ignored and weren't being spoken to at all. Use of the military, um, and we were actually ridiculed at the time, and they bit like saying, you know, things that hadn't been said by anyone, like climate change causes bushfires, which we hadn't said. It was, oh, soldiers can't fight fires. We know that, but they assist in recovery. The, the logistics capabilities of our defence forces is incredible. Um, water trucks, refuelling helicopters, setting up burying dead camps. animals, as we've heard from yes, the Director um, Inspector General of Biosecurity. The, the engineering capabilities—it's incredible. It's a—they call it the green machine for a reason, 
and I've worked with them before. They worked after 2009 in Victoria. Um, but we knew that it's a very ad hoc and complicated thing to get them mobilised. So we wanted to help the Prime Minister get ahead of the game, but belatedly, again, um, down the track, it happened. But look, put all that aside, at least it's happening. Let's learn from that. The next defence white paper needs to have a civil defence stream. They need to say, from now on, we'll do war fighting, we'll do, you know, protect Australia's borders, etc. but one of the roles of defence will be civil defence and working with the emergency services, backing them up in these logistics and support roles. Um, it's happened in other countries. It needs to happen here. Well, Greg, that, I mean, that's been a fascinating insight. I hear your passion and share your passion for long-term solutions here. Um, it's the short-term solutions as well that farmers are really going to have to get their heads around. Uh, and I think a lot of that is new territory for us. So I really appreciate you sharing your wisdom and years of experience today. Yeah, thanks very much, Chris. And um, look, yeah, my heart goes out to all those people on the land and thanks for everything you do for all of us in Australia. It's been eye-opening for me to learn the science behind these bushfires and how they can be tracked and forecasted. However, to Greg, these fires were frustratingly predictable, but they came with phenomena in fires that he's only read about before. I'm keen to understand more about how fires behave, so in the next episode, I'm going to speak to Dr Thomas Duff, who is studying the behaviour of bushfires and the aftermath of these fires as it affects flora and fauna. Join me again on AgriMinders as we further explore the impact of these bushfires on our Australian land and what we can learn from these events to improve how we combat them in the future. Special thanks to the AgriMinds Think Tank Group. AgriMinders was presented by Chris Russell and produced in collaboration with Podcast One Australia. Produced by Jennifer Goggin, edited by Lindsay Green, and with sound production by Matt Nikolich.